Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Juliana Spadaro. She is postdoctoral researcher in the Faculty of Behavioral and Movement Sciences at Reuniversity at Amsterdam in the Netherlands. She is interested in conducting experimental research on pro-social and cooperative behavior. Her PhD project captured this interest and focused on understanding the relation between institutions, trust and cooperation among strangers. And that's the topics that we're going to talk about today. So, Juliana, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you today and uh, thanks for the nice introduction, Ricardo. Yeah, of course. So uh, let's start with this. What is trust from a social psychological perspective? Well, it's uh, it's nice that you are already specifying uh, and asking for a definition from the social psychological perspective, because when I start working on trust, I was really surprised to see that there is nothing like a definition of this concept and every discipline approach it from different ways. But what I, what I was able to, to get across all the different disciplines and all the different definitions is that trust seems to have some, um, some core elements and uh, pretty much everyone agrees on that right now. And uh, so, these, um, so we can say that uh, having trust in another person means that we place ourselves in a position of vulnerability. So we are exposed to a risk. And we decide to take this risk nevertheless because we believe that the other person is going to act in a benevolent way and is, gonna, is not going to exploit this trust. So, and so if you keep this uh, definition in mind, you, you, you start realizing, as I did, that actually like almost every interaction that we have in our social environment is, um, is related to trust. And we're uh, asked to make trust uh, calls and trust judgment uh, um, more frequently than, when, than what we expect. Mm -hmm. But this trust, I mean, probably it works differently uh, when it comes to family and friends and close people and strangers, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's completely true. And in fact, if we deal and try to understand what happens around uh, trusting strangers and what um, uh, drives uh, uh, the choices here, it's, a, it's another different story. Because with strangers, we have no background information, or usually we have little to none information that can help us to create this assessment of the other person benevolent. While, of course, in uh, close relationships with uh, family, friends, uh, uh, it's, it's another story. We have a lot of information and we can constantly update our trust judgment or also according to a history of relationship we have with them. While with trusted strangers, is basically most of the time only one shot, one interaction with little information. So it's true that becomes tricky. Right. And what are sort of the factors that positively contribute to trust? particularly among strangers? Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. And uh, actually, the, um, all the research is focused on trying to understand what indeed uh, contributes to developing uh, trust uh, towards strangers. 
Um, so one type of approach focus on uh, some uh, dispositional factors. So uh, what um, there is a common uh, agreement on the fact that some people just are born with a higher disposition to trust others. And this uh, kind of uh, trait, this kind of disposition is uh, pretty stable and is something that is uh, always there, like in all the interactions. And, uh, and also, like according to this pers uh, perspective, there is also some evidence in favor that there is something even genetic about trust. And trust is, is a trait, and uh, it's something that can be inherited in um, generations by generations. It, uh, there is also another type of approach, and is a, a resemble more what I've been interested in uh, understanding. There is uh, more focusing on the role of experience in shaping trust and it's based on the idea that we are um, as i was mentioning before we are we have um, a lot of interactions that uh, involve the decisions to trust others uh, like in our daily life and the idea here is that um, the outcome of these uh, interactions really affect the likelihood we're going to trust people again in the future so for example if we are if we are constantly betrayed and if our trust is, uh, is placed in the wrong hands many times after the others, we might expect to generalize this kind of negative expectations also to other situations, even which we don't know the people and even different situations too. Mm -hmm. But uh, those sort of more, let's say, social or developmental factors, I mean, do, uh, is it that when people are exposed to a particular social environment while, while they are growing up that then de they develop some sort of uh, way of dealing with others. Yes, that's, uh, that's completely true and uh, there is a lot of evidence uh, coming also for, from developmental psychology to social psychology and other branches of psychology. And indeed, uh, what happens uh, in, uh, in the early process of socialization, so interactions uh, with, uh, with caregivers, for example, as predicted by attachment theory, is very important in shaping a sort of uh, uh, worldview like a sort of a perception of the surrounding world, like a place in which people are going to be helpful, are going to be uh, trustworthy, and, uh, uh, and a sort of vision of the world, like a place in which I can put myself, I can place myself in that position of vulnerability, because nothing too bad is going to happen. And uh, yeah, this is uh, this change uh, individually, and uh, this is uh, very much related to um, in early interactions and experience. What mm -hmm. uh, are these reactions that people have to others fixed after a certain point in their lives? Or is it the case that if they change their social environment, they might get more or less trusty of others? So this is not uh, a deterministic approach. So it doesn't mean that what happens in this kind of uh, early interaction is going to affect uh, your social outcomes for uh, the entire life, because it has been shown that especially with trust, uh, trust can change according to what happened in the social environment, even at later stage of life. So uh, if we want to stick to the attachment uh, perspective, what we see is that, for example, interactions later on with other significant others, so for example, a romantic partner 
or like uh, very close friends can really change uh, uh, the attachment style. So the way in which we see others also as trustworthy and so on and so forth. But also if we um, think about trust from like a societal perspective, there are some studies on migration that show that when people migrate from, for example, low trusting countries like Italy can be, uh, and, and migrate to Northern European countries that are usually in which people are usually more uh, trustful and, uh, and more trustworthy, they, uh, those people change and adapt their level of trust. And if we then measure the level of trust of these migrants with uh, comparable others that remained in their country of origin, we see that there are some striking difference. There are on, that are accountable mainly for this change in the social environment. Mm -hmm. And how do levels of, tr of trust emerge on a societal level? I mean, do we have to start by looking at how individuals interact with one another or can we look directly at some uh, social forces, let's say? Yeah, indeed. Uh, what I what I've been talking about was uh, pretty much based on the individual level. Uh, so we said like what drives this perception and what drives this judgment. But we can also see trust uh, from the societal level, and uh, this is, for example, the focus of the work uh, from uh, the political science and from sociology that takes uh, all a different angle. And what we notice if we if we look at this is that there are some societies that overall can be perceived as more trustful than others. So, and these, uh, all these research is based on, uh, for example, uh, very popular large scale surveys that include uh, some uh, uh, items that measure the perception of general others as uh, trustworthy. As a, um, and uh, yeah, so based on this, on this kind of research, we made the idea, we, we had the idea that some societies are more trustful than others. Mm -hmm. And do you do you know, for example, why is it that uh, when we compare countries, some of them have higher levels of trust and others lower? Like, for example, South Europe usually has lower levels of trust than North Europe. Do, do we know anything about that? Yes, that's uh, indeed. It was very interesting to see this uh, this difference, and uh, what what like one of the most uh, prominent prominent explanations of that uh, is uh, focusing on the role of institutions. So because like uh, those uh, those societies and those countries uh, all rely on uh, different institutions that differ for quality and um, and uh, produce different societal outcomes as well. So if institutions work well in a country, we can expect a set of uh, other consequences. And also um, some research show that indeed there is a strong correlation between, um, for example, um, the, the, the degree to which people perceive that a government in a society is corrupt and also the trust uh, that they pose in others, or for example, the, the some more ob objective indicators like the rule of law. So how much the norms are followed and uh, enforced in a certain society is also correlated to how much individuals trust each other. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, this is the result of the kinds of institutions that we have set in place, but do we know why different institutions develop in different places? So, 
this is a uh, this is a uh, all uh, of um of a different debate and um, because of course uh, they these this institution uh, evolve and uh, are exactly like this because there were like different histories that the societies uh, faced uh, in the past but uh, what's common uh, among uh, these institutions is uh, like the main function, also from an evolutionary point of view, because uh, institutions are, are in place, were, were put in place in the very first place uh, to provide some structures and some norms. And uh, so, they would, so that they would allow uh, individuals to create expectations in the social interaction, even in social interaction that were more uncertain like for example those with strangers mm -hmm. right um, is interpersonal trust associated with on a societal level in this case with social economic and political outcomes for example yes we can uh, see some uh, some uh, constant patterns there so for example we see that in uh, in societies uh, in which there is a high uh, interpersonal trust towards strangers uh, we can see some other societal benefits for example a higher contribution to to charity donations or more volunteering or um, in general in these societies individuals report to be happier and uh, have a higher level of well-being so here the definition as trust uh, that is always mm, made in sociology as a social lubricant uh, is really appropriate because we see that the entire uh, social interaction became like are facilitated by the degree of trust and also from the economic point of view um, trust is associated to a different of outcomes based on the idea that in interaction in which there is trust the transaction costs are reduced so we don't need like very complex structures to accommodate that economic interaction because there is trust in place and uh, indeed we can see that there is like more economic growth uh, over over time and uh, more behavior for example tax compliance that all contribute to economic wealth of societies mm -hmm. so there's a relationship between trust and cooperation right Yes, I think uh, at this stage uh, it becomes pretty evident uh, from uh, what I mentioned. But if we if we think about what is cooperation, it becomes like immediately even more evident. So when individuals are required uh, to cooperate and are faced with this kind of decision, they face a dilemma, and uh, they are facing a conflict of interest between getting like an individual uh, uh, positive outcome in the short term, something good for the self, or uh, making a decision that benefits the entire collective but pose a cost to the self and what's uh, interesting here is that deciding to contribute to the collective uh, becomes uh, uh, costly for the individuals especially if other people are deciding to keep um, the um, uh, to to prioritize themselves and to and to free ride so there is a high risk of exploitation there and there, like, if you really, if you have like a high degree of trust, you have strong expectations that others uh, will will be benevolent and will contribute, and this will lead to greater cooperation in turn. 
Mm -hmm. <laughs> Something interesting come, came to my mind now, that is, so, for example, one way of studying different societies is by comparing their levels of individualism and collectivism. So, so there's yeah. sort of an individualist-collectivist spectrum. Uh, does that have anything to do with trust and cooperation? Because in that case, perhaps... Uh, would we expect that collectivist societies would be uh, would have higher levels of interpersonal trust? All right, I'm very glad you asked me this question. This gives me the opportunity to to share like the results of some work I've been uh, I'm conducting right now. So we are running uh, together with Dan Balliet, Caroline Graf, and other colleagues a uh, big meta analysis. So that's a meta analysis on like uh, 1,500 studies across 70 countries, and uh, it tries to account for the cross-cultural variation that we find in cooperative behavior. So what we did here was to select some prominent theories and uh, individualism and collectivism and the role of values is one of those and trying to see whether it explains variation in cooperation. So we can do like two hypotheses from that. One that is more in line to what you were uh, mentioning and the other one that is actually an opposite prediction. So um, especially early approach on the, on the topic would predict that we would expect uh, uh, more cooperation in collectivistic societies because collectivistic societies are, are thought to uh, value uh, the, the collective uh, outcome more than the self. So there is really a collective uh, thought in there. But also on the other hand, more recent approach shows that in collectivistic societies, uh, the interaction is based in very tight groups and tight networks. So we could expect more trust and more cooperation within those networks, but more skepticism uh, when interacting with strangers because individuals were not used to that's not what uh, they, they did over time. So we test both of these predictions in our meta-analysis and uh, we found uh, no evidence of a relationship between um, collectivism, individualism and cooperation. So uh, it, I'm sorry, I must say that at least in our data, it doesn't play much of a role. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So would that indicate, uh, as you mentioned, I guess, that in collectivistic societies what we get in terms of cooperation runs mostly in i mean in in closely related groups people that are part of their same social group and things like that Yes, that's, uh, that's exactly the hypothesis. And also like some other work that is similar or makes a similar prediction uh, also provide evidence for this idea. Also like the work uh, uh, from uh, Joe Henrik and, uh, and uh, that group really show that in societies that had some institutions, uh, so for example, those, uh, um, so like here, the, the church played a very important role historically uh, in societies in which we would expect the relationship relationships all uh, revolving uh, uh, within uh, tight-knit uh, groups, we can't expect much more of a cooperation uh, towards strangers in there. And uh, this happens, yeah, and there are like several factors that can influence uh, why people, uh, whether people were interacting in these uh, sort of small communities or had more of a global uh, mindset and were open to other kind of relationships. Mm -hmm. And what would be those factors, by the way? Do we know anything about that? Mm, what do you mean? Uh, the, the factors that you say play a role in 
promoting cooperation mostly in tight knit groups in so even uh, even like the the quality of institutions would play a role because uh, if we for example let's think about situations in which individuals uh, were uh, facing uh, some uh, threats or some risks in the past uh, even like uh, from a um, like a stress, like pathogen stress or some threats that were posed by, by some environmental factors or some threats that were posed by some um, like interpersonal factors like a war or conflicts. So if we have some institutions that are not working well, um, we would expect individuals to rely more on their community and very small networks also there. But if also, on the other hand, the institution can provide for the need of, um, of, the, of, the, of the society, individuals feel also more secure to explore other forms of, of interaction and don't need the support that they can get from institutions, from, from the very small communities. Mm -hmm. So, in this case, in societies where cooperation occurs mostly in tight-knit groups, we we would expect probably to have higher levels of nepotism, for example. Yeah, like if we consider that as an indicator of the quality of institutions, I would expect so. Mm -hmm. And that's also like uh, what is uh, proposed, uh, not about nepotism per se, but by, by the uh, material security hypothesis. So it's really a set of theories that all converge to this uh, eventual idea. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and how do we get strangers to cooperate then? Okay, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's the key question. And that's what, uh, what like every researcher dealing with cooperation is, uh, is trying to understand. Um, there are like uh, different uh, different uh, features of the situation we can uh, we can intervene to make people more cooperative, and uh, I can uh, I can try to mention a few. Uh, I'm gonna do that right now, but um, I'd like to to share another thing. So, with our research that might be relevant to, uh, to this question, with our research group we um, develop um, the so-called cooperation data bank. So we basically selected all empirical studies on cooperation and annotated uh, some variables that describe the structure of the of the study, uh, how much cooperation was in place, and what are the variables that were studied and placed in relationship with cooperation. So whoever is interested in understanding which are the factors that most strongly uh, are associated with cooperation, even like uh, uh, doing their own meta-analysis, they can now do that just going to this platform and playing around with that. So you can uh, you can really see and compare the effect sizes of different variables in relationship to cooperation. But so as to your question of which factors can promote cooperation in interaction with strangers, one uh, one uh, possible uh, one po a set of possible interventions we can make deal with uh, um, making possible to rely on the reputational information. I know we're talking about strangers, but for example, in some contexts, like in sharing economy, when people have to buy or sell in an online context that they don't know each other, it's very important and very effective to establish some kind of systems that can keep track of a person's reputation, so fast behavior in a relevant setting. 
and uh, it also makes the behavior more accountable and reduce anonymity and this is also an increase uh, cooperation in the, in this setting and another possibility is uh, to, and to be honest is uh, one of the strongest uh, effect again is uh, to implement and to establish institutions in place so besides what we mentioned before on the societal level is also what we see consistently in experiments. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and in terms of migration, this just came to my mind. Can we understand better why certain groups of migrants adapt to their local, uh, to their new culture or not? Do, uh, in terms of their levels of interpersonal trust? Yeah, this is, uh, these uh, migration studies are, are, um, are very interesting. Um, like it, it's uh, like a very privileged uh, quasi-experiment uh, setting uh, to answer this question. And um, um, they, they provide uh, different opportunities. So we can compare the levels of trust of the people who leave a country and how the, these levels of trust adapt to the social uh, conditions and to the institutional uh, factors. But also we can uh, we can also test within the same countries uh, uh, to what extent uh, uh, trust persists across generations. So we can uh, like even compare like uh, immigrants of uh, second or third generation, we, uh, we can compare their trust levels with the trust level of their parents and grandparents. And what these studies show is that indeed trust change. So this is not something uh, something that is very stable. Otherwise, we would uh, we would not find this very strong effect. Mm -hmm. But do they tend to adapt to the levels of interpersonal trust they find in their new society, the society they migrated to, or, or not? That's what, that's what it happens. That uh, these, uh, so for example, uh, migrating to a northern European country uh, will um, will boost the level of social trust. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, at a certain point that there were people that studied individual differences in pro-social behavior. Do you also do that? And do we know perhaps what are some of the personality traits associated with pro-social behavior? Yeah, I can... Um... I can tell uh, a bit about that. So, because we, together with uh, Isa Tillman and Dan Balliet, we conduct uh, a meta-analysis trying to address uh, this uh, uh, this question very specifically. So, as you as you were mentioning, uh, what uh, uh, we observed across uh, a set uh, uh, across thousands of studies and uh, consistent across situation is that uh, some individuals just. Um, for example, play behave in a cooperative way across a broad set of situations, and uh, this uh, kind of cooperative um, way to to interact is stable also across time. So this really uh, is a is convincing evidence that there is uh, some uh, individual difference related to prosociality, and also because like uh, sometimes most of these uh, these behaviors really go against what we would predict uh, from like uh, according to classic economic theory. So in this situation, some it, it would even seem irrational uh, to cooperate, but people do that nevertheless. So what we what we did in our work was to meta-analyze 
um, all these uh, experiments that employed economic games because they were like very standardized settings in which we could observe uh, emerging uh, these uh, prosocial and, and, and cooperative behavior. And uh, what and what we um, and what we did was trying to select a set of different studies because uh, many different uh, many different paradigms provide different features of the situation. So there is nothing like an economic game. We're talking about very different things. And what we observed uh, is that there is no trait that um, uh, results in uh, enhanced, uh, for example, cooperation across all these situations. But the situation matters uh, a lot. And um, so, for example, what we what we propose uh, with our uh, with our um, theoretical framework is that each situation provides some specific affordance, and these affordance uh, allow the personality to emerge and to guide behavior. So, for example, uh, among the affordance that we propose, we have uh, the um, possibility of exploitation. So, we would expect the trust, like propensity to trust to predict uh, prosocial behavior in situations in which this possibility of exploitation is salient. So for example, when you're playing a game first without knowing what other people are doing. Mm -hmm. Right. But I mean, these individual differences, because you mentioned that there are people that cooperate across different contexts. Uh, I mean, it's it seems that they cooperate almost independently of the social context, right? And uh, I mean, like people who are high on certain traits, uh, like have a, like an enhanced uh, propensity to to be cooperative across a, a range of situations. It's not like uh, never uh, influenced by the situation, of course. But what we notice is, for example, we found uh, that uh, across uh, across studies. Um, uh, people who were uh, categorized as a pro-social according to social the social value orientation. So those are people who really place a lot of value in uh, the in uh, the shared outcomes and uh, and the collective benefit. They were more um, those uh, those people cooperated significantly more in the games. So we have observed that really the strongest correlations there. And uh, and some other traits that had uh, like a very very strong correlation with the prosocial behavior they observed were um, um, having like high levels of guilt proneness and uh, high levels of honesty humility and in general uh, some pro environmentalist uh, tendencies too. Mm -hmm. uh, the honesty humility factor comes from the exaco. Right. Exactly, exactly, from the Exaco model. And uh, these uh, all relate to like being fair in a situation and uh, um, yes, and to these, uh, these, uh, these affordance that I was uh, of exploitation that I was uh, mentioning before. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so let me just ask you about one last topic. Since we're talking about cooperation in social psychology, we have the bystander effect. So the, does, uh, does it vary depending on the levels of interpersonal trust we have in a particular society? Oh, that's, a, that's, an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. To be honest, I'm not aware of, uh, of research that has uh, compared the effect in a cross-cultural settings, uh, in a cross-cultural setting. 
I would uh, I would speculate that for uh, what um, so for the way the the bystander effect has been uh, theorized, uh, we should not expect uh, um, much of uh, much of variation because what is uh, what is expected is a very strong effect of um, uh, preventing uh, individuals uh, to um, display some uh, helping behavior or prosocial behavior in situations where others are in place. And it doesn't seem to be related to cultural factors. It's all about the situation uh, um, here. But uh, I'm not sure about that, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I mean, just one last question. This yeah. bystander effect, it is still a thing, right? Because I'm asking you that because we had recently the replication crisis in psychology and more specifically in this case, social psychology. So uh, is it supported by the evidence? Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. And uh, indeed, uh, besides uh, the, the replication crisis in uh, social psychology, very specific to the bystander effect was an increased uh, criticism uh, and uh, increased, let's say, skepticism regarding uh, the, the the anecdote and the story of uh, of how the bystander effect uh, also was um, was made famous with. So, uh, like, and by, by the way, could you tell us about that story <laughs> because it's yeah, interesting? This is uh, so basically the the bystander effect was made uh, very famous. Uh, um, some years ago by um, uh, John Darley and B. Blatane, um, when um, because of the murder of Kitty Genovese. So what happened is that like uh, Kitty Genovese was killed and uh, what was uh, really advertised in the newspaper is that during uh, this murder, uh, a lot of people were actually seeing that from the windows. Like uh, I think there was maybe New York or a really metropolitan area. So when this uh, went out in the news, there was a lot of uh, a lot of blame toward those irresponsive bystanders, and this was a really powerful metaphor. But what happened very recently, and also there is a cool Netflix documentary for whoever is interested, is that um, they try to reconstruct that story and realize that. Uh, this is um, there, there, there is like another side of the story and maybe not entirely true or accurate what was displayed because uh, actually she received some help and some people called the police. So the stories are much weaker than what's presented. So this had some recent um, criticism in terms of uh, from the scientific perspective. Uh, I think uh, so the, 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 the most recent meta-analysis on the topic to get some cumulative evidence is still a bit outdated. So it's uh, around uh, 10 years ago or so. But in any case, even that meta-analysis did not find a strong evidence for like a publication bias. So it seems that the effect is robust with some ones. Like for example, it works more in an experimental context rather than like in, a, in the field. But still, like uh, we might expect, is uh, it's it's fairly strong. We also provide with our um, in the past with our research group also with the University of Palermo, um, a, a, a replication of this work, and uh, we found uh, we found some evidence. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is the explanation behind the bystander effect? Uh, effect? 
why do we have that effect on people? So the the, the most um, the most common explanation deals with the diffusion of responsibility. So if uh, there is an emergency in place and uh, and we see that there are other people rather than us in the situation, we would be more will more likely to think somebody else is gonna take the responsibility and make that uh, that call and help. So the diffusion of responsibility was one of the main uh, explanations uh, that was put forward. But um, I think uh, one important uh, thing to mention here is that uh, this uh, kind of uh, pro-social behavior, it's uh, the helping behavior in this situation is very, is very special because it's particularly costly. So these situations, uh, differently from what happens in social dilemma and in uh, and in um, in economic games. Uh, have a real cost, uh, also like a physical cost, uh, to the person uh, who is uh, is called to intervene in a situation. So it's uh, it, it it really becomes uh, more tricky to to explain. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, just one last question: Do we know how to increase levels of interpersonal trust in society? Uh, wow, you're, uh, that's, a, that's a very interesting uh, last question. So, I mean, we can, uh, we can all think uh, about uh, interventions that revolve, uh, in, um, uh, revolve around uh, designing uh, uh, institutions that work efficiently. And uh, what we show, for example, with our, uh, with our work uh, is that um, in order to, so for institutions to really uh, shape and promote interpersonal trust, it's very crucial that they are trusted themselves. So these are all, uh, this is all about the perceptions of these institu of, of institutions. And this is something that we can also, that we can intervene. And, is, and uh, um, especially institutions can do something about, because this perception is related to the idea that institutions are really competent and uh, they're able to um, to make the work they're asked for, and they're really benevolent, and they work in a way that is morally aligned with the citizens' uh, um, citizens' uh, standards. So we can work on this perception, and is a, and is a really a, a, a kind of intervention that is not costly at all to make. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so just before we go, Juliana, would you like to mention some of the best places on the internet where people can find your work? Um, you can find uh, my work on, on my Google Scholar profile under Juliana Spadaro, but uh, you can also find the work I, I mentioned uh, on the Cooperation Data Bank online and uh, some other work that I do together with the lab and the lab members uh, is uh, also in uh, the Amsterdam Cooperation Lab uh, webpage. Okay, great. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And Julian, again, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you, Ricardo. It was a great pleasure for me. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. I've been doing this channel for three years now, 
and it is thanks to people like you who support the show that it's been running for so long. And so I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Peroga Larsen, Logorero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan V. Salanian, Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalanias, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Yugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodranco, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslam Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, my producers, Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ilian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.